Hey Vancouver, how are you? I'm Mike Howell and welcome to episode 4 of 12th and Canby the podcast. My guest in studio today is DJ Larkin. She's a lawyer with Pivot Legal Society who acts on behalf of homeless people in our region. Listen in as she talks about her experience participating in the latest homeless count, her battles in the court, and what she was up to on a trip to Switzerland. Hi, DJ. Thanks uh, for coming in today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, I've talked to you over the years to get your insight for stories I've done. Uh, your name is certainly familiar with a lot of people in the city. But for those who don't know you, maybe you can give the listener a bit of a bio on who you are and uh, when you began your work at Pivot. I moved to Vancouver in 2001, uh, and it became pretty apparent that Vancouver is a really fascinating city right from the get-go. Uh, yeah. I didn't have somewhere to live when I first moved here, and I actually called one of the SROs because I didn't know where to go, and I thought, well, maybe rooming houses is a place to go. And I remember calling, and the landlord said, if you're calling to inquire about a room, you don't want to live here. And I had no idea. Really? Uh, and so that was the beginning of my education about uh, what it means to live in Vancouver and be a Vancouverite. And I graduated law school in 2010. Yeah. I started working at Pivot Legal Society four years ago. Yeah. And since then, I've worked primarily on issues around uh, housing and homelessness and the criminalization of people who find themselves homeless and living in public spaces. Where are you from originally? I grew up in Calgary. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, what drove you to come out this way? Oh, poor decision-making in youth. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I actually came out here to study music therapy. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. So you're a musician. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, it's part of the history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's your chief role at Pivot? You touched on it a little bit there, but uh, I know talking to Douglas King, I know he's a police accountability and there's, there's others over the years I've spoken to as well. What's your, what's your main role there? So over the past four years, I've worked on issues of uh, people who are homeless being criminalized because they have to sleep in parks and public spaces and they don't have other options. So we see people sleeping outside all of the time all over Vancouver. The problem is we actually have a legal system that makes that prohibits that. If you're homeless, there's actually nowhere where you can lawfully go, which really puts people at risk of being displaced all the time, being harassed, being ticketed, um, hiding from authorities, which means that even when you have someone who's looking to help, um, it creates a system of and an, an atmosphere of mistrust where people really feel like they need to hide from people because they're doing something that they know they're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So we've done a lot of advocacy and some litigation around that. I've also worked with people in, in SROs who um, are living with the results of really poor maintenance and poor maintenance enforcement in our low-income housing in Vancouver. Okay. Uh, and looking at housing policies that would better protect people who live in supportive housing, because that's one of the things we hear a lot from the provincial government is we're going to push for more supportive housing. Uh, we don't have the systems in place to hold um, hold people accountable yeah. in supportive housing and to make sure that tenants' rights are respected in there. So how do you how do you get your clients? Do they come to you or do you go to them? How does that work? That's a, it's a variety of things. Yeah. Um, some clients come to us. When it comes to people living in public spaces, the odds of someone walking in the door is pretty low. Yeah, I was uh, going to say. Yeah. So uh, there are groups that we work with, peer-based groups that we reach out to. You know, everyone knows Vandu in town. There's also yeah. other groups in Victoria and in the Fraser Valley that we work with. Um, myself, personally, I once an issue's been identified and people have talked to me and said, I'm really worried about this or this is what's happening to me, uh, I put on a backpack and I go find people. Really? Yeah. So do you consider yourself more of an, uh, a legal activist or how, how would you describe doing that? Because not every lawyer does that. 
No. Uh, and uh, lawyers are have really different opinions about it because uh, traditionally lawyers are supposed to be completely unbiased. You just take whatever issue comes in the door and that's what you do. Mm. Um, I My practice isn't like that. You know, we work on really specific issues. Uh, I am a campaigner as well, which means we do law reform, we do advocacy, we do public legal education and research, and that's really different. So I'm a campaigner, I'm a lawyer, I'm a researcher. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very different role to be in than a, a standard law practice for sure. So I know, I know I've read somewhere where you've talked about the criminalization of, uh, of homelessness. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Give the listener an idea what you mean by criminalization of homelessness. Sure. So the, the simplest definition is um, bylaws that prohibit people from being in public spaces. So you can get ticketed, uh, you can end up being red zoned, which means prohibited from entering an area just for sitting, lying down, sheltering in a park overnight. Uh, it also means that... Um, it puts people at greater risk of being searched by police, having interactions with police that can actually lead them into the criminal justice system. Uh, so if you get searched or you get picked up uh, because you may be acting in a way that police find problematic, uh, then that can lead into the criminal justice system. But at the beginning of the day, it's merely because this person had to rely on public space to sleep and exist. In the United States, it can lead people directly into the prison system. In Canada, it's much more likely to lead people to be displaced, ticketed, um, red zones, like I said, uh, but eventually that can lead people into the prison system. If you breach a condition for, um, you know, going and accessing healthcare in the downtown east side when you're not mm-hmm. supposed to be there, but it's the only place you have, right? that can actually result in prison time. Okay. I wanted to talk to you uh, a little bit about uh, some of that um, court action that you've been involved in, but before I get to that, I know it's only a couple of days ago that uh, there was volunteers spread out right across the region to count homeless people in the Metro, um, uh, homeless count. And I understand you, uh, participated in that. Uh, give the listeners an idea of what your experience was like, uh, uh, doing that. Yeah. So I was one of about, I think it was 1200, 12 to 1400 volunteers all over Metro Vancouver. Uh, we, they, people are recruited all over Metro Vancouver area to go out for two or three hour shifts. Uh, it's, It's a really interesting experience to see people coming together who really want to do the right thing. They want to uh, talk to people. They want to get to know what people's issues are and why they're having trouble finding homes, what what led to their homelessness. Mm -hmm. So from the volunteer perspective, there's a lot of really uh, good intentioned willingness to get this data in the hopes that it will lead to better policy. Right. Uh, The count itself is an interesting one because the methods are quite limited. And that's not a a criticism of the people who run it. It's just that the methodology of a point in time count will always undercount how many people are actually homeless. Right. It's just a snapshot. Yep. It's a snapshot. So you'll miss people for sure, especially within the context of uh, local bylaws that make it unlawful to sleep outside on a sidewalk, in a park, under a bridge, anywhere. And and you can look around Vancouver under the highway. You know, there's fences up under the bridges. There's fences all over all the nooks and crannies. So it's really hard to find a place to go. Right. So that means people are hiding. Makes it harder for them to find them, frankly. Yeah. So you'll undercount people. You also miss a lot of people who uh, may be couch surfing because it's safer, maybe trading uh, something to get a bed overnight. Right. Uh, And, you know, so there's there's a lot more people than what we're finding, for sure. So did you participate in the count in Vancouver or was it another area? So this year I was in Vancouver. Uh, In previous years, um, I've participated in the downtown east side area. This year I participated in the west end, er, sorry, the west side of Vancouver. And what did you find over there? Did you you talk to anybody? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I won't. Uh, I won't give too many specifics right, because yeah. we have to protect people's identities for sure. But yeah, I definitely chatted with some folks. It was. Um, uh, it was quite early in the morning. It was six a.m. So you're waking people up. Right. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, in and of itself, I know is challenging. Uh, it's uh, it's an interesting interaction. But what I find is uh, people are pretty willing to chat. Uh, they'd like to tell their story. Um, there's. There's always a risk because there's a stigma around saying, I am homeless. Right. Uh, because at the end of the day, no one should be homeless. Uh, Vancouver is their home. Right. They're members of the community. And so they are without a place that they pay rent. So I know I've talked to the mayor about this. I've talked to the housing minister about this. I just wrote a column about this. Where do you point fingers, or maybe that's the wrong way to frame this, but who's who's to blame for all this? I mean, if you look out today, you came in, the sun's shining, there's fresh snow up on the North Shore Mountains. If you go down to English Bay, it looks very beautiful. Mm-hmm. But we have this huge homelessness problem that's only growing um, in the city and in the region. And in fact, the uh, metro mayors have launched a campaign to put pressure on governments. But I don't know, in, in my time, I, I just get the sense that all these governments keep pointing fingers at each other, and meanwhile, the uh, homeless population grows. So who's who's to blame here? Yeah, it's so frustrating. Uh, and the finger pointing is costing lives yeah. You know, right now. Uh, we know that just based on basic coroner data, um, people are, lose about 40 years of life expectancy once they become homeless. So when we talk about this finger pointing, yeah. we're losing people in their 40s instead of their 70s and 80s. Right. Uh, so it's really serious. Uh, we can start from the legal framework, which says this is the province's responsibility. That doesn't mean that the federal government doesn't have a role to play. I mean, the federal government signs on to all sorts of international covenants saying uh, a right to housing is a, is a right and it should be enforceable and it is something that we believe in in Canada. Yeah. Um, the federal government has previously uh, put a lot of investment into housing uh, and in the 90s they just stopped. And right. so we just stopped seeing the development that we needed because the funds stopped flowing. And we don't have a, uh, we didn't have a federal housing plan for the last 20 years. We're just starting to work on one now. Yeah. The province, however, is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. How so? Uh, because they do hold a lot of the strings. Uh, they have the budget to make a difference. They have made a decision over the past 15 years or so, uh, longer than that, but certainly 15 years, not to uh, invest in social housing, affordable housing for the people who are at the very lowest end of the income spectrum. That is one of the, it's just one of the major causes of what we're seeing right now. There's no way around it. And that falls at the provincial government's feet. Now, when they say we've spent this much money, why are the cities complaining? You really have to say the cities are the ones who are dealing with this on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong. I'm not going to let the city off the hook on this one. There's more <laughs> that the city needs to do too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, many municipalities didn't see this coming and they're not ready for it. Yeah. Uh, constitutionally, we kind of set up our framework where the federal government gets some things, the provincial government gets some things, and cities were really only given power and jurisdiction over really basic stuff. You know, right. if you talk to mayors in smaller towns, they'll say, well, I kind of thought I was in charge of sewers and sidewalks. Yeah. I didn't yeah. think I was in charge of large-scale social problems. Yeah. So when the province starts pointing the finger back at cities, we really have to ask some serious questions. That said, in Vancouver, we're a rich city. Yeah. We are a development-rich city, and yeah. therefore sort of a development-dependent city. Right. Uh, and we need really, really strong action to make sure that when the city is developing lands that they hold, 
that needs to focus on housing for people who are most at risk. That's people who are living on welfare disability assistance, uh, because that's the only way we're going to see an upwards pressure in terms of housing stability for people. Yeah. Well, and, and to that, I, I mean, as, as I mentioned, I've talked to the mayor many times. He said you know, they're probably the, the one municipality in the region that's doing the most. Um, you know, they always like to slam uh, Burnaby for not having any shelters. Uh, but then you'll hear Rich Coleman, the housing minister, say we've done more uh, for housing than any jurisdiction in the country. And it was interesting, uh, the other day I was reading a council report, and, and it's a report that tells you how many buildings in this city are tax-exempt from, from property tax. Mm-hmm. So supportive housing is actually, as supportive housing buildings are actually exempt from taxes. So they had a number in there on how many supportive housing buildings there are in the city. Would you have any idea? Oh, it's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a, a lot. It's 104, which I think that, that's mm-hmm. quite a few supportive. Mm-hmm. And supportive housing, in case the listeners don't know, it's it's subsidized housing and people who have maybe issues with addiction, mental health, that the supports are there, are supposed to be there for people mm-hmm. if they need counseling, if they need uh, health care, et cetera. So I was, I don't know if I'm surprised at that number, but that that's a lot of supportive housing buildings in this city, 104 that are exempt. Uh, what do you think uh, when you hear that number, 104 supportive housing buildings, that we have the highest homeless population ever in Vancouver? We do have those buildings and yeah. we have thousands of people who are homeless. The point of the argument is not to say the BC government has done nothing. Yeah. The point of the argument is to say we have thousands of people who are homeless and yeah. part of the reason why we are seeing that is because we may have 104, 103 yeah. supportive housing buildings, but as people um, stabilize in their lives, as they may require less supports, do we have any affordable housing to move them to? Right. So people are actually getting stuck in supportive housing and sort of over-institutionalized just because they don't have enough income. And then there's nowhere to bring people in. Mm-hmm. You know, we have wait lists. We, there's a lot of difficulty in actually getting into buildings. It's not enough. Right. Uh, and the BC government may be spending quite a bit of money on buildings and shelters. Uh, but the real question is, are they listening to uh, local governments and are they listening to advocates and especially people who are actually experiencing homelessness and finding solutions based on what people who are living on the streets need? Mm-hmm. You know, are they actually in touch or are we poorly spending a lot of that money on shelter beds when we could be looking at other options that would be better and safer and actually more affordable in the long run? That seems to be a political back and forth that's going to go on forever because as soon as one government uh, opens uh, its mouth and another one says, provide us a solution, they'll say, well, we're doing our part. You have to do your part. It just seems back and forth, back and forth. Well, not, not that anything doesn't get done, but you know, Rich Coleman will say that uh, they um, spent money on 13 supportive housing sites in the city, which are equal around 1,500 units. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll talk about renovating more than 25 SROs. Oh. I'm just curious, do you ever get a chance to sit down with government leaders and, and, and express the concerns? I mean, you're on the front lines, you're acting on behalf of homeless people, you're putting on your backpack, you're going into these hotels. Do you get an opportunity to sit down with Coleman or Gregor? Uh, we certainly have open lines of communication with the city. Yeah, You know, the city knows and they're really accessible in the sense that they're right up the street from where we are right now. And right. so it, uh, they become a much more accessible space to have these conversations. Uh, the BC government is much less accessible. 
you know, they're very keen to re-announce over and over the same supportive housing units that they've opened or renovated or whatever, uh, but they're much less open to actually having a conversation. Uh, part of the issue is we have members of our provincial government who think it is okay to say things like, you know, we shouldn't complain about income assistance rates because it's not as bad as a third world country. Mm. Or, uh, you know, acknowledging that we haven't raised income and assistance rates in a decade and people are trying to live off $610 a month. That's if they have housing and that includes right. their rental payment. If people are homeless, they have $210. Yeah. Uh, and ministers within the provincial government will say, well, we don't have to make it easier. They should just get jobs. Well, it's impossible. And I would happily go into great detail about that. Mm -hmm. So there is the door is closed there to have a conversation uh, because there is an entrenched attitude of um, not assisting, not understanding the value of assisting people who are living in poverty. We need to stop treating housing as if it's a political football that we can throw around because it has been. Right. We, th we talk about it as a commodity. We talk about it as a charity. Uh, we talk about it as a service we provide. So that makes it a political football. What it is is a right and what it is, is a uh, health and life safety issue. Speaking of rights, I know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was maybe a little over a year ago, you took a trip to Switzerland mm. um, and you submitted a paper. I wrote this down, the United Nations Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Mm -hmm. What was the purpose of your trip there? Yeah, it was twofold. Uh, first is in Canada, like I said, we have at the federal level signed on to a covenant that says everyone in Canada has the right to an adequate standard of living, and that includes adequate housing. There is no way within the Canadian legal system currently to go to court and have that right enforced. And so again, we end up in a situation where instead of doing something, governments can just keep punting the political football around. Uh, at the international level, the uh, Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights is very, very concerned about that. It is not an acceptable uh, end state, especially for a country like Canada that holds them out, holds ourselves out as a human rights leader in the world. Mm -hmm. So we went to talk to them about the justiciability issue, the fact that there's no legal remedy around right to housing in Canada. We also went to talk to them about how the net result of that is when you don't have a legal enforceable right around housing, what you have is people who are homeless and living in public spaces and are subject to policing. They're subject to, you know, we heard years ago in Abbotsford, having chicken manure thrown on their camps, having their tents cut open, having their tents bear sprayed. Uh, they're at risk of community groups, uh, sometimes threatening violence against them. Uh, and we need to stop that. By talking to the committee, it means that they get to question the federal and provincial governments on this, and they get to make recommendations. And some of those recommendations include ending systems of laws that criminalize people who are just trying to find ways to meet their basic needs, their basic necessities of life. It you mentioned uh, you mentioned Abbotsford. I wanted to just hold that for a second. We're just going to take a short break to alert our, our listeners about some of the other Glacier uh, Media podcasts featured on the Press Play Network. We'll be right back with more from... DJ Larkin. We're not like the rest of the country. Separated from everything east of us by the Rocky Mountains, fronted to the west by ocean, and to the south by an international border, we have a history and a culture that's all our own. It's different here, and it's that difference that we explore on This Is Lotus Land, a podcast about people and their lives in BC's Lower Mainland. Whether it's the history of gangs in East Vancouver, taking the bus to the North Shore, or the time Fidel Castro landed in Richmond, it's about stories that aren't going to be told by Toronto or Montreal. 
You can find me, Barry Link, and this is Lotus Land at pressplaynetwork.ca and on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. That's This is Lotus Land, telling unique stories about our part of the world, one difference at a time. Okay, we're back with lawyer DJ Larkin from the Pivot Legal Society. I just want to pick up on that point. You were talking about uh, chicken manure and what was going on in Abbotsford. And a few years ago, I believe that you acted on behalf of homeless people in Abbotsford and you, you won a court victory there. So remind the listeners about that case and what um, the judge's uh, ruling was. So the case uh, really started with um, a really concerning number of actions taken against homeless people in Abbotsford, including pepper spraying people's tents, cutting down people's tents in the middle of winter, uh, or cutting down at least one man's tent, we know for sure, in the middle of winter, even though, and, you know, the officer admitted on the stand that he he didn't really turn his mind to where that person should go. Mm. Um, the city utilized chicken manure as a way of uh, trying to get people to stop sleeping under a particular tree. Uh, again, without any thought as to where they should go. Uh, and this is all within a context, again, where people are hiding in the woods, they're hiding under this tree, they're trying to find places to go. Uh, the shelter was uh, not meeting the needs of many people in that town, which we know at the time, and they were prohibited from sleeping in parks. So we've been left in this strange place where instead of being able to litigate for a right to housing, to actually have somewhere for people to be housed, we're left with a legal framework that requires us to fight for the right to set up a shelter overnight in a park because you don't have somewhere else to go. And so that's the framework for the litigation. Now, how did you get involved in that case? That's a long way to go with your backpack all the way up to Abbotsford, but how did, how did you get connected up there? There is a group of drug users and former drug users and who are often people who experience homelessness and um, were having issues with the shelter who alerted us uh, that this was happening and that they were having issues with the police. Uh, and so I, I went out and started interviewing people just out of that concern. And after hearing from so many people who were just devastated at constantly being moved around, feeling unsafe, feeling like they just had nowhere to go, you know, nowhere to go where they wouldn't be harassed, nowhere to go where they knew they could leave for a minute and come back and the stuff would still be there. Uh, we just felt like we didn't have a choice. We had to act. So since that decision, uh, I don't know if you can draw a straight line to the number of homeless camps that have been set up around the region. Uh, what I heard from the Metro mayors said that it was more than 70. I heard from Mayor Gregor Robertson it was more than 80. So is that why we're seeing so many encampments now is because of that ruling that people are allowed to do this? Uh, I wouldn't draw a straight line. No. So the litigation only went so far. It, it did a couple of things. It's pretty clear in law that cities shouldn't be prohibiting people from sheltering overnight. Okay. But it didn't go so far as to say you can set up an encampment. It makes it pretty clear that people are still being displaced every morning around, you know, between 7 and 9 a.m., depending on the city. Uh, that's not enough to meet people's basic needs, but it is a start. It at least gives somewhere to go overnight. Yeah. The other thing that the Chief Justice said in the ruling is that it's clear that people do need space to be during the day and they need somewhere to be consistently. Um, that needs to be somewhere where people can access services and where they can uh, eat, rest, stay warm, wash, and attend to personal hygiene mm -hmm. and shelter. So that starts to sound like the basic necessities of life. And that starts to sound like people need somewhere to go. It doesn't necessarily mean an encampment. And the ruling certainly didn't go so far as to say you should set up you can set up encampments on a sort of permanent basis, but it does mean that people need somewhere to go. And that is very, very clear. I don't know if there has been an increase in camps or if there's just been an increase in attention to them because it's, uh, it's, it's time that we stop pretending that they don't exist. Uh, and 
any ruling like this one, like the superintendent ruling in Victoria, super intensity ruling in Victoria, mm -hmm. that uh, allows people to stop being displaced and allows people to do what is safest for them rather than being displaced, rather than being made invisible, I think draws attention to an issue that we all need to be paying attention to. Uh, and it also means that people are safer right now. You know, it's right. not housing and it's not adequate, but we need to help people stay safe right now so that they are alive if we ever make the housing that they need. Certainly put municipalities on notice with this. I mean, had you not intervened, what would have been the state of uh, homelessness in Abbotsford or for people who want to be in, well, camp outside? I mean, it, it does put cities on notice, certainly. Uh, mm -hmm. In Abbotsford, in absence of the litigation, who knows what would have happened. What we know is that people were being over-policed and chased around. What we know is that there was only one shelter and it was high barrier, meaning people who uh, have substance use issues or mental health issues weren't able to access it. Um, we know that there was no real dialogue between people living homeless and the city council. Since then, they've got a second shelter that is low barrier. They've had to change their laws. Uh, their police have been held accountable for the actions that they took against people. And so there has been a real shift. Uh, and that is a good lesson for other cities to learn so that they don't have to learn it the hard way. And we mm. shouldn't have to. This is not an issue we should be litigating. The, the notion of going to court to tell a city not to use chicken manure against homeless people is frankly absurd. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you weren't going to let the municipalities off the hook, and, and, and you mentioned a few things there. But I asked a question of uh, some of the metro mayors a couple of weeks ago because they were slamming the provincial government and mentioning that we need more um, investment from the feds as well. But I asked uh, the mayors, I said, uh, do any of you take any responsibility for homelessness in your city? And Gregor Robertson was the first to the mic to say, well, we've been forced to take responsibility but what do you say to that? Do you do municipalities, do mayors and councils, do they t should they be taking any responsibility for homelessness? Mayors need to take responsibility. They can't solve the problem alone, but it is incredibly important that they take responsibility uh, in a very open and accepting way. A few reasons. Mm. Some are, you know, really basic like cities need to be ha holding land for development and making sure that they're getting all of the zoning restrictions out of the way to build uh, low-income housing. They need to be really pushing for that. Cities like Burnaby need to have proper replacement policies instead of just tearing down all the low-income housing around the metro town area and displacing single parents, people with disabilities, seniors, uh, refugees to build luxury condos. That's totally unacceptable for a city to engage in that. Mm -hmm. And cities need to accept responsibility to say, these are members of our community. These are core constituents that we care about. And this is just one of our municipal responsibilities to work with people to make sure they are safe. That is not just because they need to do these strict policy things, but it is because people living in the streets face so much stigma. Yeah. They are constantly treated as though they need to go away. They're a nuisance. They need to be displaced. They're not members of our community. Uh, and that puts people in danger. And mayors and city councils have an obligation to fight that stigma. In reality, what happens is uh, people go through zoning consultations. Yeah. It provides the public a place to give input. And often that input can be based on stigma and prejudice. And then where city councils, or in some cases like Maple Ridge, uh, members of the Legislative Assembly make decisions to not move ahead with housing projects on the basis of stigma and prejudice, they're really committing an act of discrimination. Yeah, you're talking about there were some proposals in Maple Ridge to build some housing out there. I know the mayor, uh, Reed, uh, talked about that frustration. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, though, I, what's the public's role in all of this? Mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about governments and leadership, but does the public have a role in uh, reducing homelessness, getting people off the street? 
Well, and we get into some real challenges here because, you know, we talk about laneway housing, but people want to hold it for guests and friends or basement suites, but people want to hold it for Airbnb. And you get into these really complicated conversations around an individual saying, but I'm just one person and I just need the extra income. But then looking at the full scale of, you know, what does that mean when our secondary suites are being used for vacation rentals over the, in the large scale, that's, um, it's a really challenging question. And one that I I hope people are grappling with because we need those secondary suites really badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need people to be engaged in a positive way. So when there's a rezoning application, it's really easy for people who think, oh, that's a great idea to not show up to city council, but we need people to show up. We need city councils to hear, you know, these are members of my community. I want to build a shelter. I want this. I want this. I want this. It's very important that it's not only a vocal minority of people who are what you would call the NIMBY, the not in my backyard um, segment of, of a community showing up. So, you know, there's that. Uh, people need to vote, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because we are in a very dire situation around income assistance rates. People are becoming homeless and are falling into homeless all the time because they mm-hmm. just can't afford housing. $375 is not enough. Yeah. It needs to be an election issue. People need to get involved. I wanted you to answer this question. I'm sure a lot of people wonder about what to do. And what I'm getting at here is that when I choose to drive into work, I'll roll up uh, to Main and Terminal. Mm-hmm. And most mornings, there's someone on the corner wanting me to give them a, some money, mm-hmm. contribution. What do you do in a situation like that? I mean, some days I'll, I'll unroll my window and I'll... I'll give give them a loony or a toonie, and other days I, I'm just focused on the light. I mean, what are you supposed to do in a situation like that? Uh, honestly, listen to what that person says they need. Yeah. You know, uh, you can't solve a person all of a person's problems for them in that moment, and you also can't assume that you might know better than they do what they need. Right. Uh, if someone says to me, I need a coffee, okay, let's grab a coffee. If someone says to me, I need two bucks, sure, cool, and it's also none of my business what you spend that on. Right. Um, people are... We are all complicated beings, and I know when I'm hungry what I need. I know when I'm sleepy what I need. I don't need someone making that decision for me. So if someone asks me for change and I've got it, I give it to them. Yeah. Uh, if someone is sitting on the bus with me and says, do you know where, where the shelter is, which happened just last week, a guy just sitting there asking the entire bus, do you know where the shelter is? And if you happen to know where it is, mm-hmm. help them find it. Yeah. You know, it's these simple small things that are A, um, they're, they're tangible and helpful, They're also a bridge that says, you are part of my community. We have had this connection. We've had this conversation and, and we're just a little bit more connected and it's no longer us and them. It's just us. People become homeless as you know, for many, many reasons, but what do you think the, um, kind of the biggest misconception uh, out there is about homeless people? There's, there's a whole variety of them kind of swim around. So it's sort of, people get stuck in a whole bunch of different, um, tropes that are not helpful. There's the trope of uh, homeless people are dangerous. Everyone has mental illness uh, or they're all people who use drugs and therefore prisons are the answer. Uh, That's a really problematic Mm -hmm. uh, stereotype. It's not true of everybody. And even to the extent that we have people who are homeless who use substances, uh, prison is not the answer and actually is one of the major triggers of why people become and stay homeless Mm -hmm. is short-term prison stays. It's incredibly problematic. Uh, One of the others stereotypes is, uh, you know, people are lazy or, uh, they did, they must've done something to deserve it. It's not the reality. None of us are perfect. Uh, many people in this city, if we got hit by a car tomorrow and didn't have family to support us would end up in the same situation. How, how many lawyers work at Pivot right now? 
How big is the staff there? Uh, so there's four lawyers. Uh, Katrina Pacey's the executive director, so she's in that role. And then there's three lawyers, myself, Doug King, and Brenda Belak. How long are you going to stick around there? You got other plans? Or? Oh, man, we've got big plans. Uh, you know, I, I wake up every morning and wish that I was out of a job. Really? Uh, well, because it would mean that there, you know, people weren't suffering stigma and we didn't have homelessness right. and, you know, I would love to be out of a job, um, but we're not. And so right now, actually, um, I'm heading up a project to go around the entire province and listen to people. And it's a province-wide listening project in a whole bunch of different towns to hear um, what are the major issues that people are facing around bylaws and law enforcement and getting released from prison and how they, you know, how they exist within a cityscape. Uh, that either makes it easier or harder to access healthcare. What makes them engage in behaviors that might be riskier for them because they're uh, because of the way that the law affects them, and specifically, uh, how is the law perhaps increasing risks of getting HIV, hepatitis C, or overdosing? So we'll hear what communities tell us and kind of in keeping with the pivot model, whatever comes to us most strongly from the community of people affected, uh, if it's something that a lawyer can help with, then we'll find a plan. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to stop it there. I just wanted to thank you for coming in. I uh, really appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Yeah, thank you. So that's my show for this week. Thanks for listening. That's episode four in the bag, and there'll be more to come. I appreciate any feedback you may have about this podcast or others you've heard in recent weeks. You can reach me via email. My address is mhowell at vancouria.com. I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Howlings. You can also find me on Facebook. Go to vancouria.com or the Press Play Network to find previous episodes. Again, thanks for listening, and we will talk again soon.